Welcome to Transform Now, the podcast brought to you by robotic process automation pioneer, SSNC Blue Prism. Digital transformation has the potential to reshape the way companies service their customers, engage their employees, and manage their operations. Whether you're looking to develop strategies, tactics, or best practices to positively impact the future of work, or you're curious to see how other companies have successfully navigated their digital transformation programs, then this podcast is for you. We're here to help you transform now. Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Hairston with SSNC Blue Prism. Welcome to the Transform Now podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Mark Settle, a seven-time CIO, two-time book author, and three-time CIO 100 honoree. Mark's most recent book is titled Truth from the Valley, a practical primer on IT management for the next decade. Mark appeared on the podcast in 2021 to discuss automation at scale. And today he and I will be discussing his thoughts on next generation workplace collaboration. Welcome back, Mark. Why don't you share a little bit about yourself for our listeners? Thanks, Brett. And thanks for inviting me back. As, as you said, I've been the CIO of many organizations. I've had the opportunity to work in different industries, ranging from oil and gas to high tech, the financial services, and I've learned a lot about business in the process of being an IT professional. And currently I advise startup companies and work with some venture capital firms. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you back, Mark. You write and you speak on a number of topics that are so relevant to the times we live in and your background as a seven-time CIO gives you such a unique perspective on these topics. You wrote a piece on workplace collaboration and how technology is evolving in that area. So let me start by asking, what is the purpose of workplace collaboration and why did you decide to write a white paper on that topic? So I, I, I have a strong opinion about this. I think there's some, some deep misconceptions about the purpose of collaboration in a work environment. And most people would say, well, that's to improve the productivity of the team. You know, you hire people with different skills and talents and you want them to collaborate to improve their productivity. And that's not, not an unwelcome outcome, but you should judge the effectiveness of those investments on a business basis. And so the real reason you buy these tools and promote collaboration is you're trying to align and focus the work activities of different teams on a set of common objectives. That's number one. Number two is you want to prioritize their tasks and activities. Everybody has tons of demands on their time. So what's what should they be working on right now? And then maximize the efficiency and effectiveness of business operations. Now, people become more efficient and become more effective. That's, that's great, but that has to get translated into the effectiveness of business operations. You know, paradoxically, you can have teams that are highly collaborative, but not terribly effective, right? Mm -hmm. And you can, you can have teams that are highly effective that don't collaborate a whole lot. So. So this kind of axiomatic response that people have mentally of, oh, collaboration is good for productivity, productivity is good for the company. Therefore, productivity has, has almost like automatic business outcomes. That's not, mm -hmm. not the a fact at all. You really want to look at the business metrics. You can do that on an operational basis in terms of things like sprint velocity or on-time delivery of projects or rework reduction, but even higher order business metrics, like the cost to acquire a customer or the time to market of new products, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's, I think where the focus should really be 
and and not on how many oh how many text messages did I send today? How many <laughs> how many lines of code did I upload to GitHub? It's I hate to say it's irrelevant, but it can be hugely misleading. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Mark, in a, in addition to the tremendous shift toward remote work over the past couple of years, what are some other key changes in the workplace that perhaps get overlooked a little bit? So it's hard to be original answering a question like that because there's <laughs> so much written about what's happened in the workplace. But I think there's three things that are really worth thinking about a little more deeply. Okay. So the first is I would contend that the whole mentality around like, like a gig economy where people take on jobs in which they're trading their skills and time for compensation and career development is becoming much more widespread and really almost like the central theme yeah. premise on which maybe half of the U.S. workforce, the younger half, kind of go to work. And I think one of the ways to graphically illustrate that is many of your listeners might not remember this. But if you got a job with IBM in the 60s, your parents thought, well, you've made it for life, right? I mean, <laughs> the benefits, the pay, they're going to take care of you like shit. Yeah, you don't ever have to look for a job again for the rest of your life. And I think anybody that's gotten out of college in the last 15 years, if they were onboarded by IBM, they would feel like, oh my God, you know, I'm not looking for like a mausoleum to walk into <laughs> from a career. <laughs> yeah, I, I might stay here for a couple of years, look around for the next thing. And COVID really fueled this, the, the visceral allegiance in, that people have to their teams and their companies, that, that kind of gut feel that you have, it, it just can't be as strong when you don't have the influence of the physical presence of, of the other members of your team. And, and mm. the coming into that parking lot every day and parking at the company, subliminally, you, you start to affiliate with the goals of the company, right? So number two is. Workers and teams are becoming increasingly self-directed. And we just think about like stand-up meetings for people that are building code. You know, in the old days before, before the DevOps philosophy, things didn't work that way. People were given assignments. They went to their cubes. They did stuff and brought it back to the boss and that got it checked off. And the boss was this big brain and master manipulator that was making sure that everything came together. And so, so we've given people the tools now. To really be able to self-manage the work that they've been assigned. So that's two. And then the third one, and this is so obvious that I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to bring it up, but it, it's obvious that work is no longer restricted by time or space. So people mm -hmm. can pr pursue their job activities anytime, any place. And the implication of that is that work will become increasingly asynchronous. So. Mm -hmm. All of those little touch points, walking out of the conference room with the burning question on your mind that, that you can actually ask a coworker at the coffee bar or staying behind the conference room with a couple mm -hmm. of people and looking at each other and saying, I don't think this is going, this isn't right. Like we just talked about, like that's not going to happen. Now I know that you can do that on Slack and there's some other opportunities, but, but as you hire more remote workers, different time zones, and, and you start to use the collaboration tools to coordinate work activities, the work itself comes more asynchronous. Mm. So, so those are the big three, right? The gig economy yep. mentality, the, the self-directed work teams, and this idea that work is becoming more asynchronous. You really got to look at that when you think about how should the workplace be structured and, and supported in the future. Interesting. 
And Mark, just to follow up to that, do you, do you think young people coming out of college today, are they oriented in, in those ways around that style of work, kind of the asynchronous, you know, more self-directed type of work? Do you think that's, that's something that they've been, you know, kind of coached on and, and taught in the college setting? Yes and no. Okay. That's because I think people want job experience, right? So you'd find some people that would say, boy, I just want to find out how you do things here. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. coming conceptions or thinking that I know how to do it better, et cetera, et cetera. I, I will just kind of follow your lead and you tell me how the work was supposed to be performed, which would sort of be the antithesis of self-directed. But I do think by the same token, as they become more knowledgeable, they will have their ideas. And we all have this in our careers. Like, why do we do it this way? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Frankly, the people that get promoted are the ones that ask that question, who are always looking for a better way of doing things and coming up right. with ideas and influencing their coworkers to pursue those ideas. So um, it's a, a yeah. two-sided coin. Got it. With regard to your first point, I completely agree that the current generation of students coming into the workforce out of college and grad school seem to be looking beyond that first job they get, they're already thinking about the second job, the third job and, and how they're going to, how their career trajectory might look. And and it's just so different than the perspective that people in our generation had the IBM example being a a great one. Brett, let me follow up on that one. We have some people listening who are in the early stages of their careers. One of the best pieces of advice that I got (laughs) coming right out of college was somebody said, well, stop worrying about the job you're going to do after the current one or how high you think you can rise in this organization. He Mm -hmm. said, do the best possible job you can in the work that they've assigned you. And you'll be amazed at the opportunities that right. Right. So yeah, some people get a little too conspiratorial and say after a term or maybe calculating about, oh, I I can do my boss's job and I know I could do (laughs) anyway. That's right. Very, very good advice. I appreciate you putting that out there. Mark, there have been a ton of surveys conducted over the past year about people's feelings on the future of work. What are some of the findings that surprised you the most? So I think surveys need to be treated with like a healthy dose of skepticism. (laughs) I'm sure what what you've noticed is vendors will sponsor these surveys and somehow the results always seem to serve the self-interest of the vendor. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, like if you have a tool that helps scheduling office space in a physical work office, mm-hmm. you know, find out that, oh, it's kind of trending. There's, there's a growing number of people that want to come back to the office. And so it's right, really, right. Let's get really. so, so that's one. And two, people are very fickle and there's kind of a herd mentality, right? So what's in vogue right now is to say, oh, I also, I always want to work with people. Because if the people at work start having fun at work, you, you may find that that's attractive to certain people at different stages of their career, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. So I, again, I would just caution people, be very careful. You know, if I, if I surveyed my employees and they said, oh, we're, we really don't want to come back to the office. I mean, I wouldn't spend millions of dollars physically reconfiguring the workspace immediately. Like I kind of let the thing play out a little bit, but, mm-hmm. but. Again, to directly answer your question, I think the most surprising thing, just as a generalization, is there's almost always in these surveys a pretty significant divergence between management's perspective and the staff member's perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and it runs along the lines, typically, the managers 
really feel that getting people back in the office is a good thing that people will be, you know, more productive, more interactive, more innovative, more collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, people on, at the staff level believe that they don't need to go into the office as much or ever, and that they've been incredibly productive by not being in the office. So it's that divergence that I think is, is really interesting. And just to be cynical, this won't be the first time on this, on this conversation, I'm not cynical, but just to be cynical, sometimes I read those surveys and I wonder, are the, are the managers kind of fearing for their existence? Like, like I need people to Maddox. Like I need to get back to a physical environment where I have people I can go tap on the shoulder and call into my office and do what things that managers do. And uh, right. some, some of that's been eroded by this self-managed team focused kind of workplace that we've created over the pandemic. Yep. Makes sense. Mark, let's talk about how IT departments have responded to the collaboration needs of the workplace today, the COVID altered workplace. Perhaps you could describe the different categories of collaboration tools and, and some examples of each of those. That would be great. I'm so glad you asked this question. So I think it's kind of amusing if you step back and look. So most companies today and IT organizations take great pride in the tools that were deployed during the COVID crisis to promote collaboration when people couldn't come into the office. And they would claim like, you know, that that's enabled like this whole new way of working. And it, it, this is all common wisdom today. But when you really think about what happened, and I'll, I will talk about specific tools. When you really think about what happened, we had a crisis in March of 2020. And the reaction to that was to take anything that we had available, Teams, Slack, Smartsheet, Asana, you know, whatever, and kind of throw it up on the wall, deploy it enterprise-wide and hope for the best, right? So right. what's lacking is, or, or the other way of, of looking at the challenge that we have, nobody ever asked the question, well, what if we had this hybrid work environment with a large proportion, 30% or more of completely remote workers in the company? What kind of collaboration tool environment would we want to create for those people? And in effect, what we've done is we've created work practices around the tools instead of vice versa, right? So in answer to your question directly, there's really kind of, I think of three categories of collaboration tools. The first has to do with context sharing and communication. And of course, the poster children for that category are Microsoft Teams and Slack and Zoom, as well as some of the whiteboarding tools like Mural and Miro, all of which became very commonplace during the pandemic. Then you've got the task and the project management tools like Asana and Smartsheet and Monday and many others. And then there's a kind of smaller subset of tools that are used to manage objectives and key results, so-called OKR tools. And these tools are used to set really strategic objectives at a corporate level or enterprise level, and then kind of deconstruct them into projects and activities that can be monitored to make sure that the company is and the, the workforce is staying focused on some of the strategic annual objectives that have been established. And so those are the three categories. You've got content sharing and communication. We're all familiar with those task and project management and the OKR tools. Okay. And how, how does the current era of collaboration tools address the way the workspace has evolved with remote work, virtual first, always on, those types of things. So again, we've designed work around the tools and 
I don't know if you've read some of the surveys, but every two weeks you can pick up a survey where employees of many different companies have been asked questions about SaaS applications, the business tools that they use to get their jobs done. And almost invariably over half will express concerns, which is a polite way of saying complain. They will complain about, I have too many tools. I spend too much time manipulating the tools. I spend too much time moving data from one tool to another, kind of doing these mundane things. There's just like, there's way too much busy work involved in using the SaaS tools. I would contend that the same phenomena is starting to emerge in terms of the collaboration tools, because unfortunately, in, in a lot of cases, there are multiple versions of tools in those categories that I just described. So if you take the, like the, the task and activity prioritization and scheduling tools, Asana, Smartsheet, et cetera, there are many companies that all like all of the above, right? I mean, they may have four or five different task management tools because the marketing folks got one thing and the warehousing people went out and bought something else, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you can get involved in projects and activities where your work schedule is kind of being driven or influenced by, by multiple collaboration tools. The same is true with the Slack messaging and all other kinds of text inputs that can happen. ServiceNow will send out alerts, whatever. So my point being here, I think we could, Brad, we could almost make an argument that there are certain environments where the tools have undermined productivity, right? Hmm. Where the steady barrage of notifications and alerts and updates and like, look at this now, et cetera, et cetera, just has to be so distracting at the end of the day. One of my favorite questions is to ask people, how many Slack channels are you on? And it's not yeah. for people to have hundreds of channels that can mm. reach out to them during the workday. So I don't want to throw the current generation of tools completely under the bus, but I think they've created a phenomenon that's very similar to that of SAS proliferation. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, it's because we haven't really thought of proactively designing the kind of collaboration cocoon that we want to establish for our workforce. Yeah, I, I think I'm turning off notifications across 50 applications every single day. It feels like <laughs> those notifications, they, they, they wear you down, no doubt about it. Mark, you talk in your white paper about three key areas that the next generation of tools will address. Could you walk us through those? Yeah, then I'll, I'll pick right up where we ended the, the, the last part of this conversation, which is around communication and all the various ways in which information is kind of fed and served up to an employee. So I believe that the next generation of communication management tools will find a way of improving the signal to noise. And it will do that by filtering. So there's probably a lot of information that's irrelevant. We all do this every day, right? It's like uh, Japanese gardening where they, you prune their, you know, the little tree all the time. So you kind of prune your email queue or you prune your slide. Mm -hmm. like, that's not important to me. That's not important. Then right. you can contextualize the information that's coming in from different sources and say, well, this set of emails and text messages and updates are all related to project X. So let's kind of put that in a bucket someplace. Then you want to dedupe that information. Like how much of it is, do I have to read the same information in, in four emails and two text messages and a set of meeting notes that automatically showed up in my, that particular bucket. Once, once you've done that, can you differentiate the information in terms of the action I'm supposed to take? So is this something that's for information only? Is this something that I need to make a decision on? And if so, in a certain specified period of time, like 
and, and you know, we have the technology to do this, right? Yeah. You can, there's sentiments expressed in emails and text messages that clearly portray the sense of urgency or the need to have immediate feedback or not so immediate feedback, et cetera. So if you right. can differentiate on the basis of, of what you need to do and then prioritize on the basis of the work that needs to get done by Friday, I'm totally convinced that we have the technology to do a much more effective job of boosting the signal to noise in that whole communication management area. So that's one. Two is prioritization and scheduling. And, you know, it's a axiom, time is our most precious resource. And I, I envision a set of tools in the future that answer that question. Like, what is the best use of my time this morning, today, and this week? Another good the advice I, used, I got early in my career was like, when you start today, you should always start with the hardest thing that you have to do or the most challenging thing that you have to do. Mm -hmm. And if you can get that out of the way, every, the rest of the day is like so easy. But a lot of people say, oh, no, let me go do my easy stuff. Like you know, <laughs> momentum going here and then uh -huh. I'll, I'll tackle the big thing. So, so again, I think we're more than capable of figuring out the downstream dependencies that other groups have on my work products. I think with some, some surveillance, you could actually start having machine learning models that would predict like, how much time does it take me to write the weekly report or I don't know, generate this amount of code or something. So, you, so basically the scheduling tool would say, oh no, I need, uh, uh, we need to block two hours for that. And I got to, right. we need to find a time for that. So, so prioritization scheduling mm -hmm. and then work-life well-being. So talking about scheduling. There's so much information that is readily available about sentiment and biometric measures, et cetera, et cetera, that, that it would be easy to start to construct models that would say, you know what, this, this is an activity that Mark needs to devote at least three hours to, and mm -hmm. it, it's an analytical thing. You know what? And Mark does really well in the morning with analytical things. Like we've seen if, if he puts this late in the day from three to five, He's got to schedule more time, two other times this week to basically get this thing done. If it's the same kind of thing that we've seen him do before, we know that we can do it and knock it off in three hours on a Tuesday morning or something like that. So I think, again, the collaboration tools should bring a sense of order and coherence to the demands that are being put on people and not drive them crazy and, and produce frustration and, and stress in the, in the workplace. So, so getting the noise out of the communication stream, really figuring out what is the important stuff that's the most leveraging for me to do this day, this week, et cetera. And then yeah. putting that all together in a way that turns individual employees into victors of the way that they're managing their time instead of becoming victims of the collaboration mm -hmm. ants that are being placed on them. I, I really think that the next generation of tools will enable that kind of a vision. Wow. I can see all three of those being tremendously helpful, no doubt about it. And what technologies do you believe are fundamental to those next gen tools that you described? So the machine learning capabilities, I think are kind of obvious mm -hmm. in, in conjunction with that, I believe the conversational user interface will become increasingly ubiquitous. Okay. So here's a, a good example. How many people get up every day and while they're either shaving or brushing their teeth, they look at their work schedule. They may see some messages that they're consulting, you know, et cetera. So if you had a conversational interface with a Siri or Alexa type of a digital assistant, 
you know, you could start asking questions. Who, who's coming to the meeting at 10 o'clock? Are there only three of us? Okay, cancel the meeting. <laughs> no, we cannot have that meeting without bread. So cancel the one this morning and go find. And that's just like two sentences, right? That's not mm-hmm. like 15 clicks that you have to do. So that's, I think that can open up some doors. Biometric monitoring, I talked about before. There are some really, really interesting things that, that can be done. If you leave your camera on, the, your facial expressions and the way you use your eyes, et cetera, can be used in a way to understand your ability to concentrate and, and maybe proactively inform you like, hey, you need to take a break. You know, like we've, you've been in deep concentration for, for whatever. Go, go get a cup of coffee, at least get up and walk around the room or do something. And then sentiment analysis. And so I talked about like screening a lot of that communication. And this is another area where there's a lot of existing sophistication where you can scan the text and you can look at the tonal intonations of conversation and infer a lot about intent and urgency and, and the other person's emotions at the time. And so the technology is there. The technology is there. Admittedly, some people may find some of these capabilities invasive. But if they can prove to be useful in helping me make better use of my time and being more effective on the job, I think people will opt in. They will say, yes, you can, yeah. turn, on, you can turn on the camera. I, I do want to be interrupted. I, I don't want to go zombie for five hours sticking email responses in between Zoom calls. I can't do that anymore. It's getting, getting out of hand. Agreed. Mark, I know that automation technology was not within the scope of the white paper, but I, I do want to ask you one question on that front. Do you, do you see companies looking to give their employees their own desktop automation capability or digital worker, if you want to put it that way, in order to, to free up more time for collaboration? Absolutely. So I'm, glad, I'm real glad you brought this up. So a lot of companies by now have centers of excellence around automation. And those centers of excellence have a variety of tools, maybe some kind of a, a no-code workflow orchestration tool or an RPA kind of a tool, et cetera. And, you know, with a little bit of training, individuals can actually start to use those tools to make their own lives easier. So again, tedious, repetitive things that are done either kind of like frequently or infrequently, people can build scripts for themselves. They can set up some data quality screening procedures so they don't have to look at an Excel spreadsheet line by line or whatever that is, and really make some of their work go away. I'm a big proponent of business process automation, and I think the, the opportunity is very large and you'll never be able to staff an automation team to a point where they can actually address my unique needs or even maybe the unique needs of my small four-person team, right? So, so I really think this is an area where a little time invested in their formal training can have a huge ROI personally, because it allows knowledge workers to really reapply time to either more, more activities that make better use of their skills or allow them to broaden their skills instead of just, you know, I know it's the fourth Friday of the month and I know I've got to like put this dashboard together and, you know, mm-hmm. send it up the chain of command and I'm going to follow the same procedural 17 steps or 67 steps that I always do to, to put this thing together. It's kind of a pain in the neck, but here we go. That's, that's my job. That's what they want me to do. Probably out of 67 steps, probably 
57 of them could be, could be done through some kind of a script. So yeah, I think there's huge potential here. Having said that, I don't always know quite, I, I don't have strong feelings about how you motivate people to invest the time in learning to use the tool, but I, I really think mm-hmm. pay big benefits. And uh, frankly, I think from an employee engagement and retention point of view, as we get into the hybrid world, this companies that really promote this and facilitate it and devote time to helping knowledge workers become more impactful and spend less time on real repetitive things, you know, those might be the kind of companies that could be a great recruiting hook. Like, you know mm-hmm. what? Yeah, everybody here, part of the employee orientation is you're going to learn how to write scripts. And when right. they can you go off and do X, Y, or Z, well, yeah, you're going to sit down and kind of know how to save some time in the way that Yeah. Happen. Everyone here gets their own digital worker, co-worker, yeah. that is. Exactly. <laughs> of the emerging tools you've studied as a part of writing this white paper on workplace collaboration, which one intrigues you the most? I love a question like this because one of the ones that scares me the most are there's a set of tools that basically monitor what a knowledge worker does in front of their screen every day. And all of the collaboration metrics that I referenced during the beginning of our conversation, the number text messages, the size of the files I uploaded to Box, the Zoom minutes that I spent, et cetera, et cetera. Though in many cases, that information has been served up to bosses and it's sometimes referred to as bossware. And this, obviously these surveillance tools became popular at the beginning of the pandemic because executives were worried like, well, gee, everybody's home. Are they just goofing off? I mean, what, mm-hmm. I mean we don't, we can't see them anymore. So like, we don't really know what they're doing. And. I think here's the, the kind of the ultimate irony. I am categorically against these tools being used by managers or anybody else for that matter. First of all, because I don't think that the, the metrics that come out of them necessarily have anything to do with productivity or with business <laughs> outcomes, right? So it's right. The, the emperor has no clothes, like we're chasing our tail, looking at <laughs> stuff that are completely misleading. Yeah. Where I think the value is would be at an individual level to get a report card back. Just then here's the most elementary example. And this, you may have experienced this yourself. On my iPhone, I think the iPhone once a week tells me, oh my God, like you spent like 10 more hours last week than the week before. But if, you know, I begin to worry and I think, well, okay, I did listen to ESPN a little bit. But if you had like a little report card that, that not only said, no, here's how you used your time. You spent this much time on Project X. We can look at the meetings and the texts, whatever but also in a relationship point of view and say like, like you spent a lot of time collaborating with these people, interacting with these people. You really, <laughs> you talked to your boss for three minutes in the last two weeks. He's not right. right. So I would look at that and go, you know what? I probably need to talk a little more to my boss. You know, I need to, mm-hmm. I need to get a little more visibility there and, or, oh my God, I'm still like, like this project I thought I was done with. These people keep coming back. And when I look at the number of emails and text messages and meeting minutes they're still sending me, I need to tell them I'm out. Like I really, yeah, like it's over. I, I don't want to, I don't have the time anymore. Sure. I mean, nice for me to hang out. I like, I enjoyed the company of the people in that project, but I've got other things I need to spend my time on. So I think in terms of personal time management and relationship management, I think these surveillance tools properly configured and, and, you know, Mm -hmm the right kind of metrics would be hugely beneficial. I, I could use that right now. I mean, I, I would sound yeah. right now. 
Well, Mark, thank you so much for rejoining the podcast. It's been, been really nice chatting with you about this topic. It's not one that gets covered a whole lot, and it definitely has implications on the world of automation that some of us live in. So thanks for taking the time. I uh, really enjoyed it, and I wish you the best. Thanks so much, Brad. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Transform Now. For more insightful discussions on digital transformation and more, check out our podcast channel where you'll find all of our previous episodes. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. For more information about digital transformation and the future of work, check out blueprism.com to learn how SSNC Blue Prism's digital workforce is enabling enterprise transformation now.